Welcome to episode 33 of Polly Wanna Cracker. I apologize that there hasn't been too many episodes recently, but uh, personal life, a little bit busy, and uh, I've actually scored a new job. So once I start that job, you may notice that these episodes remain a little bit infrequent, but I'm doing my best to uh, get as many together as possible and get a steady flow of shows going once again. Today's guest is Sky Kokoski moore the NXT Senator for South Australia. We talk about, uh, obviously, politics and what's been happening in Parliament of late. I've been a little bit out of the loop myself. Uh, but in particular, we uh, talk about the Murray-Darling Basin and the recent deal that NXT struck with the government. But we also get, a, as always, we get a good idea and a good insight into Sky's background. She's um, an incredibly friendly person, great to talk to. Uh, obviously, had never met her before. Um, but uh, in speaking with her, uh, she's clearly very passionate and uh, loves what she does. So uh, I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Uh, of course, you can get in touch with me, polypodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter and Facebook at polypodcast. So that's all from me. Uh, you can expect uh, another episode soon and um, enjoy the show. Hello, Sky. How are you? Good, Tim. How are you? Pretty good. Thank you for meeting me on this warm day here in Adelaide. My pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I haven't actually um, been doing these for a little while just because, you know, work commitments and personal life going on. Yep. These things happen. They do. That's <laughs> right. So I'm perhaps maybe a little bit out of the loop in the last few weeks. So let's recap What's happened in politics, say, the last four weeks or so? My goodness, that's a big question. What hasn't <laughs> happened? Maybe yeah. that's the maybe that's the right question to start with. Um, well, I mean, certainly we've seen the government get some runs on the board um, in terms of core legislation getting through. So the ABCC and the registered orgs or registered organisation bills getting through mm-hmm. with the help of crossbench support. So I think that perhaps the government's learnt a few key lessons from the last time there was a crossbench they needed to negotiate with and uh, I think they've seen that when you're trying to convince people to agree with change you need to bring them with you so Mm. that's certainly been something that I've noticed even as a as an advisor moving into the senator role I've noticed a difference in that so yeah okay that's interesting so you guys uh, there was a lot of news recently and this is one thing that um I have kept my eye on and that's the uh, the Murray-Darling Basin that was a big thing it was a um you know, it, it looked as though Nick and the team were going to hold out for an extra, um, what was it, 450 gigalitres? Yep, for the plan to be implemented That's right. in full. Yes. And then in yep. the end, um, things didn't quite go out that, that didn't quite go that way with the ABCC bill vote in play. So what happened there and just sort of explain what that process was and how it ended up the way it did? Sure. So what Nick and the rest of us were looking for was a commitment from the federal government Mm -hmm. that the Murray-Darling Basin Plan would be implemented in full, which included the 450 gigalitres. So we got an undertaking from the government that that would happen. When we got that advice, we were told that the Premier of South Australia was also satisfied with that advice, and it was on that basis that we then moved forward, Mm -hmm. um, getting comfort from the fact that now the Murray-Darling Basin Plan will be considered by COAG, and there's going to be greater scrutiny and oversight of the way the plan is being implemented. Okay, so do you think South Australians can feel secure that, you know, the Murray and therefore the surrounding ecosystem will survive and flourish? Yes, absolutely. As long as we're around and we're pushing the government to implement the plan in full, yep. that's that was what we were aiming for. Okay, so I guess people are probably wondering like, how will you guys keep the government accountable and how will you keep them online yep. and, and keep them on track, I should say? Yep. 
So part of COAG considering the plan um, twice a year um, plays into that. So previously, there wasn't going to be that sort of regular checking in. How's it going? What problems are the states facing? What barriers are there to us achieving um, getting the plan implemented in full? So part of this this agreement that, that we arrived at with the government included that greater transparency and accountability in terms of the plan's implementation. Okay. So I'm, I'm sensing then you are quite personally comfortable with the way it all planned out? You were quite happy? Yeah. No, well, fair enough, because it just seemed like, you know, the big reports were that, okay, Nick's going to, Nick and the team, they're going to hold out and they're going to, you know, hold the government and they're, you know, they're not going to vote on the ABCC bill and all that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden it was almost like, it's it felt almost a little abrupt and almost like, oh, well, hang on, where did this come from? Yeah. You and maybe, maybe it was a bit of surprise as well from um, from the public that when the government is pushed, they'll actually agree to what they know is a very sensible proposal. And, and that was coming from us that we needed to get this plan implemented in full and a commitment from the government that that would happen. Are you, are you happy with uh, the ABCC bill and how that's all turned out as well? Correct. It was Nick's office who drove a lot of this. A lot mm-hmm. of the amendments that we got through uh, because we got government and crossbench support came from the hard work and the tireless negotiation that Nick had with the government. So mm-hmm. we're, we're particularly proud of um, a number of the amendments, including changes to the Commonwealth procurement rules, which Mm -hmm. I think are actually landmark reforms. Going into this, even again, sort of stepping back to when I was in my advisor's shoes, I always remember thinking, gee, wouldn't it be nice if we could get the government just to agree to amend these rules? Because technically speaking, the Senate itself can't do that because the rules aren't in a bill. And so we were trying to come up with a roundabout way to get the government to agree to this. But then once they saw the way we presented the argument about the benefits that would arise from government contracts having to take into account the economic benefits that would flow from local procurement, they agreed to amend the rules, which, as I said, was a, was a, a landmark moment, I think. Okay, yeah. Just explain for some of those people that perhaps aren't really fully aware of what this whole bill is and, and what it's about, because I think probably people think, oh, it's about being, building and construction. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not fussed about that. You know what I mean? But it is fairly important because I guess there's a there's a bunch of spin-offs from it, correct? Correct. And so, in very simple terms, what the bill was trying to do was create a watchdog that could monitor the building and construction industry and stamp out the corrupt behaviour that had been identified by a number of royal commissions over the past you know, multiple years. And so as an adjunct to that, we saw an opportunity to um, improve that function by way of including more reforms in procurement so that we've got more local suppliers and builders being selected for government jobs because the economic benefit is recognised. So just looking back over the political year in 2016, uh, what are your immediate thoughts and what are your takeaways? It's been a very busy year. I actually made the comment to somebody, it was the Friday um, last week, so the Senate wrapped up at about 12.30 that morning, on Friday morning, and I was talking, actually I'd gone in to say goodbye to the clerk of the Senate, she's retiring, and I said, gee, I can't believe how tired we are and, and the fact that we've only had, what is it, four or five sitting weeks since the election, and she said, I know there's been, 20, I think, 23 sitting days, and they crammed in a lot into that time. My goodness, I think there were a lot of very weary people around, so I suppose reflections um, on the last few weeks, tiring, um, but I hope that what the Senate has done has demonstrated to the public that having a crossbench that represents a, a diversity of views doesn't necessarily and isn't obstructive. We're just there to try. We look at legislation on its merits. Where we see there's opportunity to improve that legislation, we'll put those amendments forward. 
So how would you define your time in Parliament so far? It's been eye-opening. You know, I had the the benefit of having worked for Nick for um, nearly five or about five years by the time the election came round. So I'd had exposure to the way an electorate office runs and also exposure to the way the Senate works, which I think was a huge advantage um, for me going in because... I I knew that I was there to support Nick and we've got Sterling in the Senate with us as well and so I could be a little bit of a a guiding force for him Um, and Rebecca in in the House of Reps, I think she's done a tremendous job, she's there by herself and getting your head around procedure, House of Reps or Senate can be can be a bit mind-boggling so far, but um, no, I've really, I've really enjoyed my time, and I think that every every day I've learned something, and I feel like I've learned a lesson about, you know, how would I do that better next time? What should I mm. consider the next time this comes up? Yeah, there's certainly been a lot of those sorts of things that have come up, and I'm sure there are, well, there should be some other politicians that are probably asking themselves the same question. Um, I'm not going to single those out or anything, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it seems to have been a very, you know, besides the fact that it's an election year, but it's just a very interesting and almost weird kind of a, a year. There's just been so many different things. And and I, I don't know what it is, but it's just so many um, uh, stories or things that pop up on social media or whatever. It just seems like maybe I'm more aware of it now through doing this podcast, but it just seems like um, Parliament is... Um, I don't know, just, I, I don't know what the word is, but just a little crazier yeah. than it used to be. Yeah, I think certainly the attention on the Senate has yeah. increased. Um, and that's arrived, I think, partly from um, the interesting mix we had during the last parliament and obviously the mix that we've got now. So once again, we've got quite a large crossbench, quite a diverse crossbench. Um, you know, members in the crossbench who um, are quite maybe appealing to the media in mm-hmm. some ways because they can be quite extreme in their views. So yeah. what that is doing, I think, is helping sort of awaken people's understanding of the Senate, which for me is one of my goals in the time that I'll be there, is to try and help um, people understand the role that we have as senators and what we're trying to do in that House. Because during the news, you know, you'll often see question time yeah. in the House of Reps because that's where the PM is. And that's where, you know, there's a perception that a lot of the action happens. But I can tell you there were some pretty rowdy question times yeah. in the Senate. So yeah. no, I think certainly the, the media scrutiny um, is is welcome in the sense that it is helping to sort of get get the word out there yeah. about there is this new, the, a different house in the parliament that isn't the House of Reps. Yeah. But does it also as well, by the same token, sometimes do a bit of a disservice by focusing on some of the more extreme or uh, stranger happenings rather than perhaps all the issues. You know, the media is the media. It's going to do what it's going to do. Yeah, but, that's right. You know, there are some really important issues that may get lost in some of the, the craziness. Yep. And that is that is absolutely a, a risk, I suppose, or, yeah. or a, a factor that we need to manage. And so I was thinking as a, uh, I suppose, a counterbalance to that, um, uh, last month I um, reintroduced Carly's Law, which was a bill that Nick had been working on mm-hmm. for the past six and a half years, I think it was. So what we're trying to do with that bill is make it an offence for an adult to lie about their age online to a child and then attempt to meet that child. So it's named in memory of Carly Ryan, who was Mm -hmm. the first um, victim of an online predator in Australia. So she was murdered um, 10 years ago next February. And so what we saw during that debate was the government, the opposition, the crossbench all come together and say, while they think there were some technical issues with the bill, um, they fully support the intention behind it. So... You know, that's something that, you know, I hope got a bit of media. Sonia Ryan, who's the the champion of of this bill, her her daughter Carly, was 
um, the young lady who was murdered. So she got a lot of um, support through change.org. And so I think one of the, the things that we focus on as a team is trying to sell a positive message sometimes too and just let people know that it's not all fights and it's yeah. not all fireworks. And very occasionally you can see everybody coming together behind a cause that they know yeah. is is um, is a genuine one and is going to make a real difference. So. Yeah, well, that's an interesting one that I wasn't aware of yeah. really, you know. Yeah, so and so that sort of proves your point yeah. that, you know, sometimes some of these, you know, really, really good reforms yeah. just get just seem to slip under the radar because there might be something that's a little bit more, you know, sexy or fiery happening. So Yeah, okay. So that's interesting. So that issue in particular is that something um, that you were always, uh, I don't know, if if, passionate about getting something changed or, you know, where does that sort of come from? And and is there anything else that's similar that, you know, you're looking to implement you know, in the yeah. next next year, I guess. Absolutely. So with just returning to Carly's Law for a moment, Nick has been, as I said, working on that for more than six years and we've reintroduced the bill previously and once again the government or the um, opposition have said we've got some concerns about this. So each time we've tried to go back and tweak it. Yeah, and as now, an advisor, I assume you would have been sort of involved yeah, yeah. at some point in the past as well. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah, yeah right. with, with um, helping with drafting and, and speech writing yeah. and the bill got referred to a Senate committee on a couple of occasions, so helping Nick draft additional comments for the reports that committee provided. So this is an issue that I've had exposure to for for a number of years. And I personally know um, Sonia Ryan, and she is just one of the most inspirational people I've ever met. She's turned what is a horrendous personal tragedy into this mission to get real law reform in place that we can see the government, the opposition, the crossbench want to get behind it. It's just a matter of getting the words right. So, you know, we're working on that. So we're we're hopeful that next year we'll actually see this bill progressed and, and hopefully passed. So what's it like being a member of NXT and working with Nick? Because at the time of the election, there were other politicians that perhaps questioned how it might work and whether it would remain truly independent. Yep. So now that you've had a few months in the job, like how has that all played out and what is that dynamic like? Yeah, well, it's terrific. And, you know, I look back at some of those comments that were made during the campaign. One of my favourites was we were a ragtag group of crackpots or something, <laughs> which, you know, you need to look at and just you have to take it with a pinch of salt because at the end of the day, it's up to us to demonstrate that we're able to work together as a cohesive group. And we've done that this year. And so for me, um, I've had to really turn my mind to that because I'm our party whip in the chamber. So for those who aren't familiar with what the whip does, it's my job to coordinate Nick and Sterling to make sure they're in the chamber when they need to give speeches and when there's votes happening to make sure we're Mm -hmm. sitting on the right side of the chamber because that could be rather embarrassing if you're voting the wrong way because you got confused about what the vote was about. So, you know, part of my, my role is keeping on top of that, which, you know, has been great because they know that if I'm calling and the bells are ringing, because I need to talk to them and say, you know, this is how we're voting on this one or meet me, meet me at this place and we'll talk about what this, what this is about because unexpected things arise all the time. So you need to be really nimble, be on your toes, keep on top of what's happening. Um, and they've been, they've been fantastic at that. So my um, a bit of a, a funny story, I suppose, my surname Kokoski, I've been told if I was still living in Poland, which is where my ancestors were from, it would be pronounced Kokoshka, and it actually means a mother hen clucking after her little chickens. And so I sort of feel like with my whip (laughs) job, there's a bit of an element of that. So, (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, I'm interested in in your background because at nine you moved to Oman? Yes, Oman. Oman, Um, And you were there for 10 years before you came back. So... Your, your father, uh, I obviously read this online, but your yep. father got a job Correct. over there. So what did that experience teach you about the world and about, you know, uh, other cultures? And also, 
with your father doing that? What did you learn from your father? Did he teach you anything? Because yeah. you're so young. Did he yeah. teach you anything oh, about new cultures? And, and So much. Yeah. So just oh. explain a bit about that. So um, you're, you're quite correct. It was nine. Um, I was nine when the family made the decision to move over there. At the time, we were living in Burrow in South Australia. Right. Uh, and we had actually intended to move to New Zealand. My dad had accepted a job over there, but then got offered another job in Muscat and he'd always wanted to live in the Middle East. So he accepted that. And so we're packing up the house. Lucky because instead of moving to New Zealand, we moved to Muscat. And, you know, at that time, um, I think I said it in my in my first speech, but there was no internet. I couldn't Google Oman, Muscat. What did that look like? And so as a nine-year-old, I was just sort of left up to my imagination. Um, so I was really scared. Like, I'll be honest, I was scared moving over there because I was going to be away from my family and in a comp- opposite side of the world, completely different culture, climate, everything. And I got there and it was just beautiful. The local Omanis are so welcoming um, to expats that come in and, in and out of the country, which is, you know, quite quite a regular thing for them to do. I remember our families being invited to weddings and first birthday parties just so the Omanis were really keen to share their culture with us so that we got an understanding about, you know, their yeah. family values and their cultural values. Yeah. So living there, going to an international school um, where there was only about 600 students, but I think we, there were more than 40 nationalities at the school. Um, that's probably an underestimation. <laughs> Uh, so growing up just in an environment where it was completely normal to sit in a class with a Hindu, with a Muslim, with someone from a Jewish background, with someone who was Catholic, and that wasn't an issue. Like yeah. it wasn't that the religious aspect of it was a non-issue and um, being there and respecting um, the culture when Ramadan was happening. So not eating and drinking outside and dressing conservatively, but not covering up. You know, they've got a beautiful, I think they've got a, a beautiful balance in, in Oman, sort of balancing their cultural her- heritage and their values and still being welcoming of sort of Western ways and, right, and okay. ideas. Yeah, I had no idea that there were other faiths and, and cultures yeah. that were coming together. Was that a result of the type of work that was on offer? And so there were people from all over the world? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So my, so just personally speaking, my, my group of close girlfriends, when I was going through high school, they were from Venezuela, England, South Africa, Canada, um, India. So, you know, all over the place. But, yeah, yeah, wow. Okay, that's interesting. So, you know, at a time when there's a lot of talk about, you know, Muslim migration and you know, that type of thing here in Australia, I imagine that gives you a pretty balanced view to that conversation. Yeah, it does. And to be honest, I find it very hurtful because what I do is I think about what would that have been like if that was me and my family moving to Oman and being rejected on no other basis than the fact of a particular religion that we ascribe to. I just, I find it incredibly helpful and unhelpful uh, and, you know, I I called it out in my first speech um, and I'll call it out again in the chamber if I feel that the debate is turning too toxic because this is not the Australia that I think many of us know and love. It's, it's fear-mongering at its very worst. It's, it's a weird time. <laughs> it is. Um, it really and, is. Yeah, and for these, it's, it's true. Now, I don't know that I identify with, with any side of the political scale. There are things that I like from each, yep. you know, I'm that classic, um, you know, swing voter probably and, yep. like, you know, I'll vote wherever. But um, it seems to be that sort of real conservative right resurgence lately and you know you, yeah. we've seen it in america yep. although you know whether donald trump's going to live up to any of the things that he talked about who knows and, <laughs> who you know, knows whatever. that's that's sort of up to them and, and the way <laughs> yeah. that i'm i'm looking at it is i'm trying to i'm trying to be optimistic about it you know i'm a big believer in self-fulfilling prophecies and if people keep you know going on about how awful it's going to be or how terrible and you know th- we give up some of our power to make a difference and so you know i'm looking at that they'll, they'll do what they do over there but i'm trying to 
remain optimistic. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so you, you feel optimistic about Australia's future in that regard with those types of conversations? Absolutely. We have to. I mean, there's there's absolutely no point going into a conversation already feeling like you've lost or going into a debate feeling like you're not going to get what you want. You've always got to go in with your strongest hand and with a positive attitude. Yeah. So so let's just go back to, so from Muscat, you yes. ended up coming back to Adelaide. Yes. Um, now, you mentioned what I didn't know was that you were living in Borough. So I guess that explains yeah. why you might have come back to Adelaide. Because I was going to ask you why, yeah, why come back Adelaide? To Adelaide. Yeah. So I had, most of my family were living here. So my parents divorced while I was living in Muscat. Um, I stayed with my dad, uh, finished up my schooling, and mum moved back to Australia. So she was here with my older brother and sister as well. Oodles of cousins. I have a huge family, particularly on my dad's side. I think he was one of 12 kids, so it's cousins galore. Um, But just Adelaide really appealed to me from an educational perspective. I knew I wanted to study law, and I knew I wanted to live on campus in Flinders University. I got to do both, and it was very exciting. Yeah, okay. And then then from there, I think you studied law? Law and economics, yeah. Law and economics. So from there, did you know then that you thought, oh, politics, yeah, I'll give that a crack? No, No? (laughs) not at all. (laughs) It's actually, I look back and I think it's so strange because I remember being in high school and I said to myself, Never gonna, I'm never going to be a lawyer or a politician. Yeah. And then I end up going to uni and studying law <laughs> because at the end of the day, I just wanted to do something where I felt like I was helping people. And so I got halfway through my law degree, realised the subjects I was passionate about, like human rights law, women's rights, international criminal law, I was getting passes and credits. And that was where I really wanted to practice. And then the subjects I wasn't so passionate about, insolvency law and tax law and corporate law, I was getting distinctions and high distinctions. And I mean, no disrespect to anybody who practices in those fields, but I just knew it wasn't going to be for me. And so I finished uni with a huge amount of, I suppose I'd almost call it dread because I really didn't know what it was I wanted to do. So when I saw Nick advertise a job for someone to come in and manage his constituent issues, legal background would be helpful. Your job would be advocating and negotiating on behalf of constituents who need some help or are in trouble. I thought, yeah, okay, this is this is really what I want to do. I applied, didn't think I'd get it. You know, you sort of, you talk yourself down in situations like that when you know it's something you really want to do, but I was lucky enough to get it. And then just from my time working with Nick, seeing the way that he operated compared to, I suppose, what the stereotypical um, impression of a politician is, really opened my eyes to the fact that, you know what, you can you can be a politician um, and actually achieve real change and really help your constituency. And that's that was my driving force yeah, right. behind and doing this. Not, normally, you know, we're not necessarily here to talk about Nick, but yeah. the fact that you've worked with him for mm. so long, mm. what... Give us a bit of an insight into yeah. who, who the man is and, yeah. and what he's like. I mean, I have had him on this show, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, as someone that works with him and you have it, that, that perspective, just, yeah. you know, what is the guy like? Yeah, he's as hardworking as everybody imagines that he is. He is nonstop. He doesn't drink caffeine. I do not know how really? he does it. <laughs> oh, yeah, <man>, okay. yep. <laughs> he lives on um, coconut milk hot chocolates is one of the right. favourites um, as a little bit of a pick-me-up. But, no, he's incredibly hardworking, incredibly genuine and sincere. Um, about his role and wanting to help people. And that's been a, a, a tremendous inspiration for me and, and my decision to, to get into this field. Yeah, yeah. I've been witness a little bit to some of the hours that, some of the hours he does. It's, it's yes. crazy. That's why it surprises me he doesn't drink coffee. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but just so when, when, when people criticise Nick and they say, mm-hmm. oh, okay, like, for instance, as we're, what we started out talking about, you know, oh, he's he's fighting for this and then all of a sudden he flakes. And there was a couple mm-hmm. of politicians that threw that accusation at yeah. him. I mean, is, yeah. you know, is that really fair? There's a lot of politicking involved, um, yeah. which is something that, you know, <laughs> it's politics. Re- yeah. politics. And I've re- my eyes have really been open to it recently because 
It's very easy to um, to score pot shots against somebody, particularly if, you know, that party or that person feels like they would have done more but they might have been constrained by their party or, you know, their own portfolio or their abilities. So he, um, I understand why the criticism comes. Uh, at the end of the day, it's up to us to, to demonstrate to the public what we're doing and why. And then we hope that come election day, that message has come across strong enough and that some of the mud that gets flung doesn't stick. So Yeah. And I guess they're negotiations for a reason, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you see every political party and every politician have to compromise on certain things. And yeah, their, their supporters and you know, slam them for it. But in order to get one thing done, you may have to sort of give and take a little bit. So Mm. I can't imagine it's an easy position to be in. And and these conversations that you guys have, there must be... Long and arduous. Well, they, they can be. What we do, we, we like to sit down before a sitting week. So, mm-hmm. unfortunately, you don't get all that much notice about the okay. bills that are being debated before a sitting week. Right. So, we'll get told usually by Thursday what's on the program for the following sitting week. And so, if we haven't got positions on any of the bills that are being debated, we sit down and we talk about it together. We bring our advisors in. They've been looking at the legislation too. We try and get what you know feedback the officers have received with concerns about the bill or support for the bill. And it, gen- it, it sounds cheesy, but it genuinely is coming to a consensus, like talking it out until all of us feel comfortable with the position. And if that takes hours, it takes hours, you know, and that's we're willing to do that. Speaking of taking hours, going into <laughs> the next year, looking ahead, yes. Australia 2017, mm-hmm. what's in store? What, are we, what can we expect from Parliament next year, yeah, and from yourself, of course. Yeah, I suppose I can't. I can't really talk to what's on on the government's agenda. I could speculate. Well, yeah. You know, yeah. there's some reforms that they didn't get through this time around that, that they'll obviously try to again next year. For example, um, their changes to um, childcare, which will only come into effect if they can pass cuts to family tax benefits, and so that's been a point of contention for many years now, actually. So I think next year, the government, that'll be high on their radar. In terms of what's high on the NXT's radar and and on my radar in particular, um, Carly's Law, which we spoke about before, is one that I really would like to see a resolution to next year. And I think it will happen. I'm going to stay really positive about that. Another one that I'm pushing for is reforms to improving gender balance on government boards. So we've got a bill um, that we're we're working on at the moment. We're just waiting on some more research to see if we can strengthen it. But I'll I'll get to that in a minute. But essentially what the bill is trying to do is implement a target for gender representation on boards. So we would like to see a 40-40-20 split, 40 male, 40 female, 20 of either gender across boards because international research has consistently shown boards that are gender diverse make better decisions. And we think as a government and as government boards, we have a responsibility to sort of set the agenda and to show the corporate world in Australia, this is the way we should go about, you know, um, composing our boards and, and having these better decisions made. So um, I'm looking at trying to strengthen that um, by inserting a requirement which to me is just mind-boggling that it doesn't already happen, but for any boards that don't meet a target, to explain why. So at Senate Estimates, you know, I asked um, the Office for Women that question, did you ask these boards about why they're not meeting targets? And they sort of looked at me blankly like, oh, why would we do that? (laughs) I thought, why wouldn't you do that if you're serious about trying to get some reforms through? So that one's high on my radar as well. And of course, gambling reform. So we've seen some moves by the government um, to clamp down on illegal offshore wagering which is good. They've also signalled an intention to introduce a bill next year, which sounds like it's very closely um, 
mirroring a bill that Nick and I introduced this parliament that had been re- had been introduced before. So what, what that bill that we introduced was seeking to do was establish a national self-exclusion register for people that gamble online. Because at the moment, if you gamble online, if you're sports betting, for example, and you think, actually, I'm having a bit of a problem here, you need to sign up to every single sports betting website and block yourself from those. So that can be a long process. And what it does is just open up more opportunity for the person to have that lapse where they go, oh, I wanted to stop, but I was on the website. So this national self-exclusion register would be a one-stop shop. You enter your details, you're blocked from all the websites. So right. That would seem like a no-brainer. I can't, thank you. I can't believe yes. that it's, you it have to go around to all these already. sports betting things That's to right. That's so ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And, and so that's great that the government has said, you know, yes, this is something that we're looking at doing. But um, as always, we're going to look at that bill. We'll look at it really closely, make sure it's as strong as it needs to be because you, we can't ignore the influence of the gambling industry on politics and on, in particular on the major parties. So, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic about that one. I'm going to keep a very, very close eye on it. Fair enough. All right. It sounds like a big year ahead. Big so, year. <laughs> um, thank you for joining me today My and pleasure. coming chatting with me. We'll, we'll definitely do this again. Excellent. But I'd love enjoy, that. enjoy your break. Thank you. And uh, happy, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Merry all of that Christmas, stuff. Happy New Year, Season's greetings. Yeah, all of that stuff. <laughs> all of and, it. Um, yeah, we'll catch up again soon. Terrific. Thank cool. you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Ah, Bobby want a cracker.